Welcome to Triple Take, the podcast where we uh, talk to interesting people about the book, album, and film that shaped them. I'm Carla Jean Wintley. I'm Edward Bowser. And I'm John Hammontree. And today we're here with Elizabeth Huey, the programming director and co-founder of Desert Island Supply Company, a nonprofit here in Birmingham that teaches um, writing to kids, kids of lots of ages. So uh, Elizabeth, will you tell us first just a little bit about how uh, Disco does that and then also what you guys have going on lately? Yes. Um, So we are the Desert Island Supply Company, but we call ourselves Disco for short. So I think you'll often hear us referred to that way. Um, And you can find us um, at DesertIslandSupplyCo.com. We teach, during the school year, we teach to schools within the Woodlawn feeder pattern. Um, So that's the schools that lead up to Woodlawn High School. And we teach weekly writing workshops there that are aligned with the core curriculum. So what they need to be learning in all of their subjects, we use writing to help them learn and process that. Um, In addition to that, after school, we offer free creative writing workshops to all kids at the Birmingham area. So during the school year, we're open in the afternoons and um, our program changes from month to month, but we have anything from design to engineering to music making, mm-hmm. all with that element of writing added to it as well. Awesome. And uh, y'all recently published a book, didn't you? Yes, we did. It is called The Stars Are Lying. It is a book of poems uh, written by uh, every second grader at Oliver Elementary. Uh, along with 6th, 7th, and 8th graders at uh, Putnam Middle School. And um, this is kind of the product of our weekly workshops that we've done in the schools. Um, I think that it's really awesome because it's not just the kind of cream of the crop students here, but every student has a poem in the book. Uh, So you have, you know, the kids who can't seem to stay out of trouble writing poems about being in trouble Uh, (laughs) and um, along with the the kids who love to read and write already you know yeah that's awesome and beautiful verse we have an excerpt of the book and some audio of some of the students reading their own poetry Mm -hmm. that we will include in the show notes so you guys can find more information about the book and more information on how to buy it And I have to say just one more thing because sometimes I feel like maybe um, people are a little uh, prejudiced against poetry, Um, maybe because of the way they were exposed to it in high school or elementary school. Um, So uh, we always say to our students that poetry is just art made of words. Mm -hmm. Um, There are no rules, um, or if there are, there are rules that you can impose yourself. Um, And uh, poetry is a really wonderful way to process what you're learning in school, but also what you're experiencing in your life. And so um, I think this is a really special book because it reflects that. It really is art, um, and it also wonderfully is uh, having children use their words and play with words. Yeah, I love it. And I love in the um, article that I mentioned with the excerpt, you guys also provided us with some of the students' takes on 
the experience of writing poetry. Uh-huh. Some of it is really heartwarming and some of it's real funny. What is poetry to you? Work? Yes, <laughs> or uh, how, what's hard about writing? My hand hurts. Yes. <laughs> but then, you know, some of them, even those second graders got at it, you know, it's like sometimes you know what you want to say and you can't get it on the paper. And mm-hmm. I know as writers, you all know this, like it, mm-hmm. it, that never goes away, you know. And the practice of doing it every week culminates into something that you love, that you're proud of, and a lot of stuff that you say, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, that's the work. That's what you, you just practice writing and then you get better at it. And of course, that's something you know from your own experience Mm -hmm. as a poet. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to talk about the book, film, and album that shaped you. And what are those? Okay, so I brought my book because it is um, one that I got at a secondhand store in Massachusetts. This is Virginia Woolf's Orlando, a biography, uh, which is a novel. And the movie is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And uh, the album is Play by Moby. All right. Well, and yes, did I get to add in my cheat or not? Tell us what your cheat is. Okay. <laughs> my cheat is uh, Fear of the Black Planet by Public Enemy. Awesome. I'm excited to have these conversations. So let's get into it. Sometime I'm going Okay, Liz, we are here to talk about Moby's play. Now, I am a Moby novice, so I went to do my research, as I always do, checked out Wikipedia, Uh and I checked out the songs, and it was funny because most of the songs, when you look at the charting history of the album, Mm -hmm. the the actual singles didn't really do well in a Mm -hmm. traditional sense. But then I look at the track list, and I see, like, Honey and porcelain and why does my heart feel so bad? I like know all these songs. Right. So these songs in the past fifteen years or so have really permeated pop culture without really selling in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that so many of these songs are so recognizable to a novice like myself without really getting the financial cash register success that you would think that they had? I don't know. It's funny that you say that because I'll notice and get a little irritated, you know, when I hear that, you know, uh, porcelain is being used as a transition song, and you know, in a, a piece on the radio or something That's like that. That's right. Um, and uh, in commercials, you know, you just, it just kind of, yeah, you're right. It just kind of permeates. It's, right. a, you know, you hear it everywhere, and um, but you might not notice that you're hearing it. Um, I mean, partly because it is electronic. It's, um, there's kind of a natural landscape to it. I know that he used a lot of samplings from field recordings. Yep. Um, so there are long, spacious stretches with no lyrics, and that makes it kind of perfect for being kind of background music. And it also creates a feeling, like I can imagine. I hate this because I don't like to think about things from the marketing or publicity side of things. But right. like that, I can imagine if you're wanting a customer or a listener to feel a certain emotion, that that music is the perfect kind of background to evoke that. Right, and it's really a daring project to come out. Mm-hmm. I think it was released in like 99 or something yeah. like that that so Mm -hmm. it's really good that he was able to take it to that level and at this moment it still recognizes one of the best albums of that era Mm -hmm. so let's go back to 99 2000 way back way back Uh i am the 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 years are creeping up on me so Tell me about how this album shaped you as a writer, because I think you were in San Francisco at the time. Yes, thank you. I sure was. And I think that was a big part of it, is that I had quit my job as an administrative assistant for a team of investment bankers. It was kind of the first job after college. Right. Moved to San Francisco, got this job, and um, was terrible at it. I mean, I was a secretary for a bunch of 
men working in the dot-com banking industry. There's nothing about that makes sense to me. <laughs> and um, so I quit my job, and I went and spent the summer in Denver at a publishing institute, kind of get closer a little bit to words and, and my realm of interest. And um, I remember getting picked up uh, at the airport with my roommates right. and got in the car, and they played this uh, CD. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, what is this? You know, it was so new to me. And um, it was so beautiful, and um, I mean, it did kind of feel like a defining moment. It was kind of a gateway into a lot of that um, music, like Air and Thievery Corporation, and right. a, a lot of music that I love to run to and do yoga to. You know, it's it's very spacious. It creates a landscape in your mind. It's um, you can listen to it over and over again, and um, feel something different with each listen. So um, that was really kind of. A, just a, a, a great place of transition for me in my life. And um, that, that album has really just stayed with me in that way. Well, you jumped into my next question. I was mm-hmm. wondering if any of these songs actually mm-hmm. have cre- crept on your yoga playlist yeah. or if any of them have kind of helped shape you as you continue to write poetry and do all of your other writing. This, uh, I think it's, yes, I do. Yeah, I do. Like I said, I do um, put it on a lot of yoga playlists. And, and other teachers do too, you know, like it's, it's kind of a staple. But um uh, it's the kind of music that I can listen to and then write. I don't write with music in the background. Neither do I. It totally throws me yeah, off. Yeah, but like my husband Chip, who's a writer, like he has right. to have his earbuds in and um, listening to something. But uh, so, but it does kind of get me to that place. And a lot of times, it's um, now writing for me is you know I've got ten minutes, I've got thirty minutes, but it might be in the middle of you know, having taught a class at disco and then going to pick up my children, laundry's going, you know, it's just very chaotic. And I need something to take me into that kind of dreamy magic place where writing is and poetry especially. And so this kind of music I can play and it just kind of, it helps me take that transition. Give me one song that really kind of defines that for you. I know it's hard to boil it down. Really the only song to me that I recognized Uh from the listen was um, Southside. Uh I didn't realize that the album version didn't have Gwen Stefani on it. Oh, okay. Because the only version I heard was the one with the video when she's like Uh, sitting on the bed. So when I went back and heard it, Uh I was like, oh, she's not even on it. So Uh what song really hits you even in 2016? Oh, gosh. Oh. It's uh, the first one on the album. I'm not sure what the ni- the title is. It's the one with the, oh, Lordy. Yeah, Girls. Honey. Yeah, yeah honey. that's the that's one it. I know. Yes, thank you. That, that, that's it. I mean, that's, um, and I, you know, it, it does make you, that voice, the, who is that singing? I don't even know. I'm sorry I didn't do my research. But whoever, you know, he's sampling from. Right. It's an old, you know, it's, it's pulled from the archives, and, um, but it's just like embraced in this kind of new, newness, you know, through the, through the sampling that is beneath it. Um, but it, yeah, I, I just. I it helps to track just breathe. And mm-hmm. speaking of breathing mm-hmm. and messages and music, yeah. I had to get. Now, our listeners don't know that when we ask our guests to come on, they always give us their favorite album. Uh-huh. But you I slid one in under the radar <laughs> and wanted to say, you know, also, I really like this album. And this uh-huh. one blew me away. One of my favorite uh-huh. albums yeah. is Public Enemy, Fear of Black Planet. Yeah. Tell me why that album means so much to you. Well, um, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to slip it in is because, you know, I didn't hear Moby until I was in my 20s, you know, right. um, and in a different transition. But, um, I mean, Fear of the Fear of a Black Planet came out when I was in high school. And um, 
I grew up in the suburbs, very white, very sheltered, um, and uh, this kind of music was almost like contraband, you know, it was kind of yes. like, I mean, we listened to NWA, that was kind of, you know, and I thought we were the only white kids listening to NWA at the time, but of course, you know, now <laughs> <laughs> I've been enlightened, you know, I was, um, uh, so, so with, but, and I, when my, I asked my high school friends, you know, what, what album would you say? And they said NWA. And I'll say, you know what? I just don't know if I can stand by that, you know? <laughs> and um, all the, But um, with uh, Public Enemy, when I heard that music, um, it was just this kind of awakening. You know, it was right. kind of like this other voice and this other is out there, you know? And um, I think, not to get too deep about it, but... No, you know, uh, we were, I mean, we, we, we had black history. We had the civil, you know, sections on the civil rights um, movement in Birmingham. We watched Eyes on the Prize uh, in our philosophy classroom. But my, at the time when I watched that, I was like, wow, that, that was rough. I'm glad that's over. You know, like I didn't understand how, you know, how far we were in Birmingham um, from being uh, liberated and equal and um, a peaceful place for right. everyone, you know. Um, so that voice coming through, you know, from on this album, this very powerful voice, you know, and the words that they were saying, I was like, whoa, you know, there is um, there is a big world out there, and I'm not I'm I don't know it yet. You and know? It's, you mentioned it being almost contraband for you, even mm-hmm. as a young black man, a uh-huh. young a bum black kid at the yes. time. Uh-huh. Even then, there were themes that were being told and spoken here that even didn't even hit me until I heard it wow. coming from that place because these are things that were swirling around me in my community Uh but it didn't hit me until I hear it coming from these two guys and they are like hitting me in the face with it. Chuck D is like look this is the reality of life and when I can hear it from someone who you can look up to almost as a role model and hear these important words and you can start to piece together the the sort of injustices that swirl around you mm-hmm. it made me a stronger listener stronger person a mm-hmm. stronger writer yeah and I love what you said earlier in um, your intro when you said that poetry is art made of words mm-hmm. that hits me because poetry just like hip-hop mm-hmm. often is criticized for being lowbrow or I don't not deep enough not strong enough not classy enough what is it about poetry and hip hop yeah. that can make such an impact, even though it's not your quote unquote traditional writing? Right. Um, let me take this in for a moment because that was all great what you just said. It's it's um, because I think especially with uh, Public Enemy, the word they're so smart. There's you know, so and smart. they're pulling you know. Farrakhan's a prophet that you think that that I think you ought to listen to. Right. I think Jay did say to you, what you ought to do. Um, but uh, I memorized those lyrics. And this was before, like, I didn't have the lyrics to look up online. Like, you, we didn't have yeah, Wikipedia we and Google and then. We played yes. and, and we're like, what was that? What's he saying? Um, and so I think that in pulling from so many different sources, not not just sampling, but in in the where they the range of where they went with their language and their similes and um uh, and similes, similes were so awesome in hip hop. I mean, right. that's that's um, that's also really a great tool that um, 
some people don't recognize, you know, these literary devices that are used. Um, but I don't know. Um, I think the question you asked was, um, what is it about poetry and hip-hop that um, some people might uh, not realize is so important? Was that the question? That was it. <laughs> you were on it. I think probably that it is that um, there is a range of poetry, just like there is a range of music, you know. Um, and if you have only experienced a little bit of it, um, then maybe you haven't found what's going to speak to you. Um, but that it's out there, right? You know. Um, and I know that especially with poetry, but, and that it's and that um, especially with hip hop, that when it's done well, uh, you have to be super smart. You know, you have to be to let and, those messages be heard in the mm -hmm. way that Chuck D was delivering them. Mm -hmm. That is the type that's mastery. Mm -hmm. And again, it's the same thing with poetry. Mm -hmm. When done well, it can really hit you. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, there are so many lessons and, and themes from that album. Can you think back to one that over all these years in 2016, a oh, theme right. from that album that just has stuck with you all this time? Like, you mentioned Farrakhan. I didn't know who Farrakhan was <laughs> until I heard right. them say that. Right. Um, you know, I think, if anything, it's just an album that we need, people need to listen to now. Even you know? in 2016, it, you know, I would definitely agree. And there is, there is, there is anger, and there's a lot of power, and there's um, a kind of self-criticism in, in the album. Um, but there's also... Um, wit, you know, and that's, you know, that's kind of, and, and I mean, I mean, the fact that like I grew up, you know, in the suburbs of Birmingham and it reached me and talked to me. And then of course it, it, you grew up in Birmingham. No, I no. grew up in Virginia. Actually. In Virginia. Yes. Okay. Found you wherever you are, you know, like it's, um, it's a conversation, you know, it creates a conversation. And it's the power of words. Mm -hmm. It can travel from state to state and mm -hmm. still hit me and you from different backgrounds mm -hmm. and affect us in the same way. Mm -hmm. Liz, you're wonderful. Thank you so oh, much. I got to talk about my favorite album. Okay, so I was excited when you said that the book that most shaped you was Virginia Woolf's Orlando for a couple of reasons. One, because I own some Virginia Woolf. I've never read. Oh, good. <clears throat> so this I was like, exciting. okay, you're going to force me yeah, uh -huh. a little because I, yeah. I have a terrible slash wonderful habit of uh – -huh buying way more books than I can get through at any um, moment. Yeah, I'm with you. You have to surround yourself with them. Well, it, They'll I, come to you at the right time. I call it planning for retirement mm -hmm. because yeah. one of these days yeah. I will retire, I think. So anyhow, but so, you know, you bumped her up on my list. Yes. But then as I got into Orlando and mm -hmm. its themes, mm -hmm. that really intrigued me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm excited for this conversation. But I wanted to start just by asking, when did you first read this book? So this book I actually read probably in graduate school. So okay. I was in, you know, my late 20s. So mm -hmm. that's kind of late. However, um, the reason that I even thought of Virginia Woolf is because she is one of my all-time favorites. Mm -hmm. And 
um, a writer's diary I read mm-hmm. very early on. And mm-hmm. if you, I recommend if you're, if you're mm-hmm. starting with Virginia Woolf, you should start there. Um, and if you have a young writer um, in, that you're looking for a gift for, this uh, writer's diary is a really wonderful book. It's a place where um, it comes from her actual journal. She was a journal keeper, and um, her husband pulled, uh, went through after she died, pulled um, all of the excerpts um, and pieces that had to do with writing. And so, um, I mean, there is a little bit about her life, but it, it really is kind of her fluctuations um, of emotions that are attached to her writing and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being frustrated with not being able to write what she wanted to write, um, Mm -hmm. or days when she was elated that she did write well. Um, She has this great quote that is, I feel like I am harnessed to a shark, which uh, stays with (laughs) me, and there are, you know, times, moments in my life for various reasons where I feel that very same way, and um, that you do, so there's just something raw about it, and I mean, she's an artist, you know, and so you get to see um, what's going on in her head while she's creating, yeah. And I love, as a writer, getting Mm -hmm. to see behind the curtain, getting to see some process, Mm -hmm. and getting to see the ways that people are influenced. And then, I mean, one thing with Orlando that surprised me was its success. Mm-hmm. Um, because these themes about gender and, mm-hmm. you know, feminism and this sort of thing, this book came out in the 20s. In the 20s, yes. And I would think that if this were to come out today, man, there right. would be some hot reaction to it yeah and you know what's so funny when I read this book because um I didn't I'm not a Virginia Woolf scholar I just love her I have read by this point I've read her biography and um or one of them Hermione Lee's which is also a really great um biography um so I'm not a scholar but I just love her and um when I read this book um I didn't do any research I wasn't Mm -hmm. reading it for a class it was Mm -hmm. just pure just opening a book and Mm -hmm. and following the story um and so even though there was all of this kind of crazy stuff happening, I mean, in the book, the character changes gender mm-hmm. several times. And um, the, the main character is a poet. It's um, uh, kind of modeled after Vita Sackville-West, who was a lover and friend of Virginia Woolf's. But, um, so there, not only is she changing gender, but she's also, I think this takes place over the span of 300 years in which mm-hmm. she's living. So she's kind of moving about through ta- time. Um, but on top of all that craziness, which didn't even seem that crazy to me, is this character just really trying to orient herself or mm-hmm. himself in uh, where she is at that moment, you know? <clears throat> and that could be a character who's uh, driving carpool. I mean, you know, it's the same kind of human tendency to orient yourself and to document your surroundings and to mm-hmm. be in love and to have relationships and everything. Uh, it's just in this kind of wild landscape. Right. Well, and I mean, those are timeless themes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's probably part of why we can talk about it now. And it seems so relevant today, almost 100 years later. And then one thing, too, that I thought was interesting was, you know, we're kind of in this novel playing with the ideas of reality and Mm -hmm. possibility. Yes. We don't actually live 300 years. Yes. But that was just intriguing to me and I wondered like how how did you react to these broad ideas because on the one hand it's a readable enjoyable book Mm -hmm. and on the other hand there is a lot packed into a few Mm -hmm. pages so 
how did that affect you? Where was your mind in this process? Well, I think that, um, I love that. What did you say? That it's a reality to possibility. Yeah. And um, Emily Dickinson, I mean, the poet, um, my favorite lines of hers is that I dwell in possibility. And that's mm-hmm. very much where the poet lives, you know, mm-hmm. is um, anchored in both kind of knowing what reality is. And definitely, uh, I think a lot of poets would say they, they spend a lot of time in science and nature mm-hmm. and kind of knowing how things are. But then also opening up this other world to kind of testing the boundaries of what could be. Mm-hmm. And also just the fact that in your mind and imagination, the beautiful thing is you can go wherever you want, you know. Right. And you can break a lot of those boundaries. And a lot of times that's where truth mm-hmm happens you know mm-hmm. um, we don't live linearly I mean in our mm-hmm. minds we don't we live <laughs> we, we do we're born in one place and we die in another but um, our minds jump around all the time mm-hmm. you know we're, we're in the past we're in the future and um, so that's reflected in this book and also reflected in, in poetry mm-hmm. well and as a poet yourself I would imagine that there would be some extra layer of being able to relate to this character was that so I love the poet is um, writing this poem mm-hmm. throughout the whole book. Right. And um, finally finishes at the end. So it takes the poet 300 years to write. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, well, if we all had 300 years, you know. Right. Like, but a lot of it, you know, and it's also kind of like she finishes it at the very end um, because she had to live all of that stuff to finish it, right. you know. So I think, and there is, there's a lot in the book about writing, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was kind of looking back through it and looking at my underlines and didn't realize how much it is kind of a writer's book, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, just because the poet's lamenting not being able to write and mm-hmm. or being excited about being able to write, you know, mm-hmm. sitting up against a tree imagining that it's a, a floor of a ship and, I don't know, just all sorts of good right. writerly things. So... You know, this deals a lot with the economy of words. Right. Um, yes. And I wonder, how do you translate those lessons in your own teaching, whether to university-level students or to the kids at Disco? It's funny because I think kids, we're still at the point with working with kids that they have trouble getting anything on the paper. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess it's probably later in their writing careers that they'll um, learn that they have to cut back. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um but I think what I draw from maybe Orlando, not Orlando in particular, but Virginia Woolf as a whole is just that um, writing is always hard. Mm-hmm. Um, even, I mean, she's an amazing writer, and I think it's kind of agreed, you know, mm-hmm. that she is like one of the powerhouses of literature, English literature, and um, that she struggled till the you know day she died with mm-hmm. whether or not she thought she was any good, whether or not she was a, a writer at all, you know. Um, and so I think that kind of exposing yourself to um, that fact mm-hmm. and reminding yourself of that fact that it, mm-hmm. it really, I mean, there are days when it's wonderful, but for the most part, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you have to, the, to teach, you know. That's what, and I think maybe what happens with a lot of um, adults that I talk to about writing, they say, well, I can't write or I never was good at writing. Well, actually, nobody is, you know. Nobody really <laughs> thinks they can write and is good at it. Um, they practice. And um, I don't think that the – or we don't hope that the kids are going to turn out to be just poets and novelists, but we're really hoping that they learn how to use their words and get them onto paper. And I think that's powerful regardless of – 
what business you're in. Yeah, it's a necessity. So it's an emergency. I mean, yeah. they have to do it. You know? They must. Yeah. And um, I want to ask one final question. This doesn't naturally flow, but I am curious because this novel deals with so many questions of gender and identity and such. And your, I believe, most recent poetry collection mm-hmm. also had a lot to do with sort of a woman's role. And, mm-hmm. um, That's right. I wondered if there are any parallels in that experience. That's a great observation, Carla Jean, because I did that that second book. Um, I was really obsessed with um, Emily uh, Post's book of etiquettes and the different um, uh, editions which came out. I think the first was in 22, and I mean, they're still making editions, so she's she's gone. Um, and a lot of it is about the, the woman's role and seeing it evolve through those books. I enjoy kind of dipping in and seeing what... Um, what women were expected to do then and what they're expected to do now. And um, having moved from the North back to the South at the same time, that was also something I was noticing a lot. Um, so I think that Virginia, did you want to, did you ask about Virginia Woolf? Particularly? Oh, well, Virginia Woolf, but just how these ideas, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously this oh, particular right. book has influenced right. you. Yes. And then that has come out in your own writing right. as well. I think, um, and I, I mean, I loved her. I've always loved her because she has been, um, she's, she, well, she was not accepted as a writer because she was a woman at the time um, by, by many of the other greats at the time. But um, also she um, and the Bloomsbury group um, were kind of, gendered questioners, you know, there was a lot of kind of um, different uh, relationships and some um, some boundaries being pushed um, on those levels. Um, but really what speaks to me in that second, the in my second book of poetry where that was coming from was not just Emily Post's book of etiquettes, but also um, Edith Wharton's novels yeah. and the female characters in there and um, the expectations that that those characters experienced. I'm sorry. I hope that didn't just blow your Oh, no, that's great. Question. Okay. No, no, no. I think it's so interesting um, to hear how these different influences mm-hmm. relate to one another. And honestly, we could go on for days. I know, right? But, yes. Um, we should probably save that for the next time we hang out. I know. Yeah, right. And, yes. And we, we should do that on books. purpose soon. <laughs> Without a microphone. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Give you a sign. Don't put a gullet off. Can you hear me? Okay, so I was really excited to see that your favorite movie was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Because, I mean, you know, like, appropriately, it was Once Upon a Time, one of my favorite movies, and then I just kind of forgotten about it. So, like, revisiting it was kind of like Joel and Clementine revisiting on the train. Me too, yeah. So, the movie came out in 2004. Mm -hmm. Why is this uh, Jim Carrey and um, Kate Winslet film Mm -hmm. resonated with you for so long? Okay, so... um... You know, I think, I mean, I remember the day I saw this movie, for one. It was the year the year that my husband and I got married. We were living in Massachusetts, and um, he's going to be embarrassed for me to tell this, but we went to see the movie, and then um, we were both just so moved by it that we had to pull over and cry in our car on the way home. <laughs> we 
we pulled over to an Outback ste- Steakhouse parking lot and <laughs> sat there and wept um, because but, you know I just I just found the emotional core of that movie just just so um, powerful. Um, but the reason I enjoyed it and the, I think the reason it stuck with me is because and it may be a little bit coming to it from a poet's point of view, you know, that kind of nonlinear structure, mm-hmm. um, the idea that um, not knowing everything um, does not, um, or let me, let me reverse that, the, the idea that knowing everything is not required in order uh, to love somebody, yep. um, and that when things are pulled away from you, either physical things um, or um, memories in this case, but also just anything um, that's taken away in some way from the relationship that you have, um, the idea that the the love is still there is just um, really inspiring to me. It was it was uh, I know that that's a really abstract. Answer no, that's a great answer. Uh, well, I'm curious. So when's the most time? When have you most recently watched the movie? So I watched uh, I watched it when it came out, and then we bought it, and I used to force people to watch it um, for a while, and then um, I did not watch it again for this. I did kind of go back and um, look at uh, the trailer, and I watched the beginning of it, but I don't watch the whole thing. How about do you, did you watch it? Uh, I did not watch it again for this, but I read through a synopsis and read through a bunch of like how it was made and everything. Yeah. Uh, I was gonna watch a copy of it and then I uh, had a book club that ran long oh, so, okay. so yes. you know uh, yeah. but I'm curious you said you watched it very early on in your marriage mm-hmm. has your relationship to the movie has your understanding of the movie changed as your marriage has gone on I mean I'm sure you've had fights I'm sure you've yeah. had things that you wish you could revisit I know but you know I don't think I think it really the reason that Chip and I loved it so much at the time too really I mean we were newlyweds we were probably real mushy gushy um romantic people but um it really was more about a a life truth than mm-hmm. speaking to our relationship like i didn't see it as a metaphor yeah. for a personal relationship i saw i saw it more as a philosophy about life mm-hmm. and art yeah. you know that um we talked a little bit about this already but um that we don't live things linearly or we don't think about them that way. And um, I also feel like sometimes being confused or disoriented is a place where art has a chance to enter you or to speak to you. And so that movie to me was disorienting. You don't really understand everything until the end or maybe after you watch it again. Um, but you so you experience it, yeah. you know, as opposed to... Um, just following it. And Charlie Kaufman is so good about writing movies like yeah. that. I mean, adaptation, just like in terms of capturing the insecurities and like the confusion of the writing process, and then uh, being John Malkovich, just like playing with identity. Yeah. But I think this is his his best movie. This I mean, I think it's the best movie for a lot of them because uh, it has the most heart. I yeah. mean, you know, it just really the and and Jim Carrey. You know, I'm not really a big Jim Carrey fan. I never loved his like. Ace Ventura, like when, or, you know, like when he was goofy, I didn't really um, respond to him. But in Truman, the Truman Show, and then in this movie, I was just blown away by him and um, the gravity of his character um, and how the, the 
normal and depressing his life was and probably too you know we were in Massachusetts and this yeah. takes place in um, upper upper state New, upstate New York yeah, I think so. and uh, my first winter in Massachusetts was brutal there's snow on the ground for pretty much um, October till May now every winter in Massachusetts is not like that but I didn't understand that so I saw that movie the winter after mm-hmm. and I think just like the brutality of the winter and um, the there's beauty in that movie, but it's um, in kind of the ugliest places, you know, yeah. the most well, depressing, dark scenery. In preparing for this interview, there's this really great Mental Floss article about the movie that just came out like a couple months ago. It's like oh, 15 good. facts. And one, one thing that I didn't know okay. is that that iconic scene where they're laying on the frozen lake with the, um, yes. the crack in the ice there. Yes. like. That wasn't necessarily in the original script. They were just kind of crossing their fingers and hoping that the lake would freeze over. And like, if the weather cooperated, they would wow. have it. Uh, and then there was another thing you're talking about not necessarily liking Jim Carrey's sort of uh-huh. more um, zany personality. Yeah. Uh, for that movie, uh, Michel Gondry told all of the other actors to just like be loose and improvise, and right. you know, and like told them this is a comedy. And he went to Jim Carrey and he was like, you know, you have to stick straight to the script. This is a drama. Like, right. your character, like, is miserable. Yeah. And so apparently Jim Carrey just, like, was really frustrated that um, that everybody else got to be just, like, how he yeah. normally is, this free-flowing. And so it's interesting, like, because you can see that anxiety in him in the film. Yeah, there's, like, a glimmer in his eyes or yeah, something, right. you know. And then one more fact that I just have to throw in because it's awesome is that uh, Kanye West loved the movie so Kanye West loved the movie so much that uh, he approached the composer John Brian uh, afterwards, and they collaborated collaborated together on a song, and the song was Gold Digger. So without Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, we may have never had the song Gold Digger, which is fascinating. Oh man! So um, that's crazy. I it, I, I kind of love Kanye. I know he has a bad reputation. I, I love Kanye. But there will be a whole podcast when they interview me <laughs> dedicated to Kanye West yes. and all things His Kanye West. His lyrics are awesome. Uh, I'm, Very good poet. One of the coolest things about this movie is just how they deal with memory and the idea mm-hmm. that memory is something that can can go away. Mm-hmm. And we were talking a little bit earlier um, before we started recording about the film Inside Out, which also deals with like the disappearance of memory. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wonder... You know, do you think about that as a mother, like that your mm-hmm. children's memories, some of them will fade as mm-hmm. they grow older and that some of your memories with your kids, you know, won't necessarily be as strong mm-hmm. 10 years from now? Is that something that, you know, this movie, that movie uh, influences you in your writing? Well, I think I, I try not to think about it because it's scary to think, you know, number one, you're like, well, are they going to, you're trying to force the memories upon them, the good memories, you know, like, hope they remember that, you know, how nice I was and how, you know, this beautiful day that we've created for them. Um, And then you also hope that you aren't remembered for your worst moments as a parent, and there are plenty of those. Um, And then, uh, so there's that, that's stressful. Um, And then, of course, you know, everybody you meet is like, savor this moment it's not gonna last they're growing up there you know and it is true but it is a it's kind of an awful thing to say to someone because it's just like you know you're gonna die soon you know it's just like everything is ending you know and um and so this movie to me is an antidote to that because it's like what really matters is something that is not um definable right um it might not even be something that we remember there's some sort of resonance or core about our um, 
emotions and experiences together as humans that seems to outlive or break the boundaries of Right, you're going to have that connection. Reality. Yeah, yeah. But there's not necessarily anything you can do to erase that because, yes. um, you know, I mean, there's these very moving scenes where he's trying to hide Clementine so yes. that he doesn't forget her. Yes. And it's like you have that experience watching the movie uh, where all these things that, you know, like, uh, you know, parents walking in on you and <laughs> when you're doing inappropriate right. things or whatever, yeah. they just like tri- the, watching the film triggers those memories of your own childhood. Right. Uh, bad breakups, you know first dates and stuff like that. So I think, like you said, it does a really good job of just capturing that feeling. Um, I think this was a great conversation. So I uh, love chatting with you. I'm glad you liked the movie because I was a little worried that, you know, because I did force it upon a lot of people and some people were like, oh. Well, I, you know, know, it's funny because I remember I watched it, uh, this is making me young. I I watched it as a high school student. So it was like, I don't think I necessarily got as much out of it then as I would get watching it as yeah. an adult because it's like you know you everything in high school seems melodramatic and important sure. and so it's like I want to forget everything yes. but you know right. looking back on like the bad memories from high school the bad memories from college and you know hangovers and breakups and all that stuff but like how it shaped you as a person you know I I don't think I would want to erase any memories I don't know if there are any memories that you would want to Oh, well, you just can't mess with that, yeah, right? You're right. Just, it's, it's like yeah. part of who you are. And, and that's apparently, what's great about the movie too is it's like, of course, nobody's going to do that, you right. know. Like, let go of that. You know, unhinge your brain. Logically, nobody's going to go and do this. Although know? one but, thing I learned from that article is in 2014, scientists apparently manipulated the memories of mice, so we might we so might not be it. too far off. So it might be a decision that people will have to make. But as you pointed out, the movie. You know, it, it won't matter. Like, you'll have these connections that you won't be able to yeah. explain yeah. that are deeper than memory. Well, thank Absolutely. you. This was yes, wonderful. Thank Thanks you. so much. I enjoyed all of it. Thank you so much, Liz, for yet another wonderful discussion on the fa- all of your favorite things that make you you. I'm John Hammontree, and you can find me on Twitter at, at John Hammontree and on Instagram at, at Birmingham I'm Carla Jean Whitley, and you can find me on social media at Ink Stained Life or just by looking up my rather distinctive name. And of course, I am Edward Bowser. You can find me on Twitter at E-T-B-O-W-S-E-R. And for the music fans out there, check out soulandstereo.com for more music madness. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. We'll talk to you all soon.